I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're reading the entirety of Peter's sermon, which actually goes through verse 40. So beginning in verse 14 of Acts, chapter 2, I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. All right, Acts chapter 2. We have uh, 
come now to the first message of those that will be preaching throughout this book. Whenever we come to these messages, they're going to take a little bit more time out of the narrative study. Uh, and of course, there's going to be more of them early on as we hear some of the first preaching, uh, not only by Peter. Um, in fact, one of the lengthiest ones we have wasn't by one of the apostles at all. It was by one of the deacons. And uh, the deacons always give me a hard time whenever I'm out of town, say, well, it's time for you to preach. And uh, they get real nervous about that. But um, one of the best in the book of Acts we have is by Stephen. Of course, it also ended in his death. <laughs> Maybe that's how you guys feel. <laughs> but uh, we're going to uh, be taking our time to look at these. And again, as I said last week, they appear very brief, but we also want to reiterate that uh, they weren't the extent of the preaching. There was rather the, the capsulizing of it um, with uh, that phrase accompanying it often, and that is with many other words. And so we're going to look at some of the uh, doctrinal issues, but also the format that they followed, talking about the redemptive work of God in history and how they depended upon God's word in addition to the Holy Spirit to preach. Before we look at that, let us uh, go to Lord in prayer and ask you for the same. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. And we pray now as we get into its study that you might direct our thoughts, that they might be your thoughts and not men's. You might direct our attitudes that they might be responsive, humble before your throne, before your word, before your spirit. They might recognize your authority over us. As we consider your truth, that we put death to our pride, that we might have life by surrendering ourselves to the author of life, Jesus Christ. Lord, again, we need your help in this endeavor this morning, even as we need your help in our singing to glorify your name and our fellowship and our giving and our prayers. So now we need your help. And Lord, we know that there is great danger in opening your word if we do not rely upon your spirit as we examine it. The danger of inserting there our own ideas and beliefs and desires instead of receiving yours. And so Lord, guard us from that danger today. The word might speak with authority, with verity in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, those that would contend, as we saw last week, that what you really need to get close to God is an experience, we find that that wasn't the case from the very beginning. That the experience of this powerful coming of Holy Spirit, seen and heard, not only by the ones that received the Spirit of God, that is the 120 plus, the witnesses, the disciples, but also all those who were gathered by it, by this great sound that they heard and they congregated around it and uh, they saw the 
the tongues and they heard them and they and the wind not the wind the sound of a wind they heard these things and uh, they witnessed it as well even though they hadn't received it they witnessed it they were the benefactors of it but that experience itself we found last week was not sufficient it did nothing really for them it left them uh, confused it left them perplexed it left them in a condition of wonder and amazement, certainly, but not of spiritual insight. It didn't give them uh, a cutting of the heart. It didn't bring them to repentance. It did not bring them uh, conviction. They saw it and they heard it. They were amazed at it, but it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't complete. It wasn't Enough. We'll put it like that. It wasn't enough. And those who want to contend that spiritual experiences are the pinnacle of the Christian experience uh, really need to study the passage and come down to those last few verses of this uh, account of the coming of the Holy Spirit and find out where everybody was at. They were all asking questions. What does this mean? And the last word used to describe them um, is they were perplexed. They knew what they were experiencing, and it was exciting, and it was different, and it was, but and it was outside of their uh, of their whatever normal experiences they'd ever had. They knew this was something special, but that didn't resolve the issue for them. The experience itself was not sufficient. And so we come into the necessity of Peter's sermon and we are immediately confronted with something that we're going to see happening time and again, really, throughout the book of Acts, is that the experience had to be explained. And in fact, having experienced this, many of them came to the wrong conclusion. Some came to the conclusion that these people were just drunk. They looked at it and said, well, this has got to be... Uh, in terms of me as a human trying to make sense of this and to put it in some kind of a of a way that I can explain it, well, it's kind of like they're drunk men. And, of course, they weren't drunk. It was 9 in the morning, and these guys weren't imbibing at that point at all. And so we find Peter having to stand up and answer the question. And fundamentally... Good preaching does just that. It answers the question. What does it mean? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? What does it mean to experience His blessing, His power, and His working? What does it mean that Jesus came? What does it mean that God gave us this book? What does it all mean? And that doesn't just necessarily uh, involve uh, definitions and, and instruction, but what does it mean to me? What is its, its implications? What, what does it require of me is within the context of this word for what does it mean? Not only explain the event, but also explain why the event is touching my life and how does it work in me. And Peter stands up ready to give an answer to that question, what does it mean? And in order for us really to have a good audience, we need to bring them to the point of asking that question. What does it mean? 
I want to contend with you that that's really what your life is for. How you work at work, your speech, your attitudes, your relationships, your life should be lived in such a manner that men come up to you, and whether they use these words or not, it's what they mean, is, what does it mean? They might ask you, why do you do it that way? Why don't you do this? Why do you do that? You, what do you do every Sunday? You get up on Sunday morning to go to church, your day off? What does that mean? Why? You see, our responsibility uh, as spirit-led people living out in the world is to live such lives that they ask you the, the reason of the hope that is in you that it exudes from every pore of your being, that people look at you and say, they have a hope that I don't have. What's the reason for it? What does it mean? Where did you get this? Why do you have it? And can it be mine? And essentially, that's where these people had come to after this event. They had gathered together a multitude, and we're talking thousands here, had gathered together. We know that 5,000 received it. That means there was probably... Uh, maybe as some people say as much as twice that, that uh, five to 10,000 people are there gathered asking the question, what does it mean? This experience, we can't quantify it. We can't, we can't understand it. We can't put it in context. What does it mean? And when the world looks at us, they ought to be asking the same questions. What does that mean? Not that we're living lives that are perplexing in and of themselves, but rather just to be righteous in a godless place, just to be uh, virtuous where virtue is lost, that in and of itself is enough for people to be perplexed at it. Why don't you just go with the flow? Why don't you just fit in? Why don't you just keep it to yourself? <laughs> That's what our world really wants you to do right now. As the big press upon the Western church, just keep it to yourself. Your beliefs are yours, mine are mine, and we should all get along by just burying our belief systems, which is exactly what I think God told us not to do and what Satan desires us to do, is to bury our belief system that is not seen by the world. But in fact, we are supposed to be the model, the picture. We are supposed to be that which people are looking at. We are supposed to be light in darkness. When there's light in darkness, it can't help but being seen. So once seen, what do we do? Well, now, that's not enough. I want to begin there. Just being seen is not enough. You have not led anyone to Christ. You have not communicated them sufficient truth for them to get saved just by looking at your life. And there is a body of of teaching that was out there, mostly in the late 70s and 80s, that lifestyle Christianity, lifestyle evangelism, that you can lead someone to Christ just by living the Christian life in front of them. And I would contend that that is simply not true. If that's the extent of what you think is your evangelism, you are wrong. If you go up and and the lady at the register rings up your stuff wrong and you correct it and you end up paying more, because they rang up the wrong price or missed something in your cart, and you want to correct them, um, 
and they go, what a nice person. You go, oh, thank you. Um, you have not directed them to Christ. You have not answered the question, what does it mean? You have not sufficiently presented Christ to them. You have given them a introduction. You have, give, you, you have flashed a light at them. You have sent a signal, but you haven't communicated to them why. What does it mean? And at some point, we need to be prepared in our lives to get up and open our mouths and communicate truth. That the gospel might go forth, that men might know what does it mean. Well, it means I have to respond. And this is what Peter does. And we'll find him several times saying this, uh, who he's talking to. And uh, at, But I just want to stop at those three words, um, raised his voice. At some point, to be truly considered a witness of Jesus Christ, you've got to raise your voice, people. You've got to open your mouth and say something. And it's more than just, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, um, but it's, um, God has made a difference in my life through Jesus Christ, and, and he offers that same thing to you, and and since you're amazed at my righteousness, then I assume that you see a lack of it in your own life. And do you understand that that makes you condemned before God and guilty? And you stand that way, and if you die that way, you'll go to eternal punishment. But you don't have to. Oh, then we could just raise our voice at some point and communicate. And look how he communicates. He doesn't say, you dirty, rotten murderers. <laughs> He starts off, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and heed my words. By the way, he is going to get to their fact that they murdered him. I'm not trying to say he didn't get there. He's going to get there. But he starts off by communicating that he understands them and who they are. And he as well as a Judean. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Two aspects. He's going to Help them understand what they experienced. Let this be known to you. So he's going to communicate information to them. And we're going to see that every good message, every good sermon, every good witness communicates the necessary information. And unfortunately, um, you cannot assume any information anymore in our society. It used to be when I was a young man, uh, we had a certain assumption level that people had a base knowledge of some of the fundamentals of the Bible. They knew the basic stories of the Old Testament. They knew something about the Gospels. They have a knowledge of Jesus Christ, of some of his teaching, of uh, his life, his miracles, his death, burial, resurrection. Um, They had some knowledge of early church life. Um, They just had some feel for God's Word. Uh, A lot of that is attributed to the Sunday School movement of the... 20s, 30s, 40s, that create a generation that really was pretty well educated in the Bible. They had that context. Um, we now live in, in really a post-Christian era uh, where that context isn't there. And so you have to do what Peter had to do and says, I want to make known to you some things. I have to communicate information to you. And so in our witness, in our communication of truth, there has to be information. We have to make known some things that they don't know about. 
And so that is one half of what Peter's going to do here. He's going to communicate some information to them so they can understand. What's, what, what am I experiencing? What am I seeing? What's going on here? And what does it mean to me? Well, that's the second part. So first, I'm going to communicate some information. Let this be known to you. And then heed my words. Now he's going to say, I'm going to be calling you to an action. This information makes some demands on you. This is not just something to log in your computer banks and to, and to categorize them back there in some files in the back of your brain uh, so that you can answer some questions on Jeopardy. Um, this has a requirement of you. You're going to have to obey. You're going to have to listen. And we're going to be exhorting you to do something at the end of this. And so I'm going to give you the information you need to answer your question but I'm also going to give you an exhortation, expectation that you are going to have to act on. You're going to have to heed it. You're going to have to listen, and you're going to have to respond. And both, I believe, are necessary. And frankly, it's a lot easier to give out information than it is to do that second part of saying, I'm going to give you some words you're going to have to heed. Not just listen to, but obey. If you're going to really understand this. And I want to clarify that very carefully because you are going to encounter some people, um, and, I, and I know some of you have done some of this already, um, who are wise in their own eyes and they, they believe because they've studied a little philosophy uh, or something like that or taken a uh, religions of the world class in college or something, that they know everything there is to know about Christianity because, you know, they overviewed it in three weeks. Um, and they're going to come at it with an idea that uh, uh, they have sufficient information to ignore the words of heeding. Ultimately, the knowledge they have of it is substandard because it didn't come from God's word. Generally speaking, it came from an antagonistic professor who made fun of it and try to teach his students how to avoid it and its truths. And so we need to come to them, giving them the full information, but also realizing that there's a responsibility upon you to heed it, or it is of no value to you. And so some people are out there who do have some of the information, they think they have a lot more than they actually have, um, and are wise in their own eyes. And we need to recognize that they really don't have all the information. They really haven't studied it out. And um, I'm reminded of that gentleman on that airplane ride back from Haiti, the geologist student at New Mexico Tech, and, and you know, thinking, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus until he's confronted with factual things from the Bible. Well, I guess I don't really believe him that way. I'm like, well, then you're lost in your sin. See, I believe in Jesus. meant that he was a historical person, and that's what he believed. But that he's Lord of my life, and he's my Savior, my Deliverer, my Redeemer. He didn't believe any of that. And he'd been taught in his school to laugh at Christians, and creationists particularly, and... Uh, 
confronted with all of that. Now he is struggling and and in all of his arrogance, thinking that he had all of his ducks in a row, he thought he knew the information. And then when he's confronted with the information in a fuller form, it just shatters his arguments of why he didn't have to heed that truth. So we are called not only to inform but to call people to action. We are, we are, we are there to, to uh, move them to a decision, to a choice, to respond to that truth as God would have them. And this um, is not only what is necessary to make good sermons, but it is necessary any time we raise our voice to communicate the truth to people. We have to give both sides. You have to give the information, absolutely. But if you stop there, you have not been a faithful witness of Christ, I'm convinced. You must give the information, but then you must also move them to decision. You must call them to heed your voice. Please listen by obedience. You must act on this information. Many of our invitational songs that we sing, including a couple of courses that we sang today, keeps reminding us that, that Jesus calls, Jesus calls, Jesus calls, Jesus calls. He expects an answer. He requires an answer. In fact, nothing good of Christianity is yours without that answer. And ultimately, you won't completely understand Christianity in its fullness until you have heeded it because you can't get past the elementary things without the help of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit won't come until you accept the elementary things. So Peter stands up and raises his voice. Identify who he's communicating with. Tells them some information as well as he's going to tell them some things he must, they must do. First of all, let's dispel their ridiculous conclusions. Now, you and I wouldn't start this way, and that's too bad, because we are politically correct in our approaches. We don't like to have people made fun of but, but, or feel like they're being diminished in any way. But uh, it's time, and, and, and some people criticize me for this, frankly, in some of my teaching models that uh, when I Sunday school teacher with the teens, if someone gives a wrong answer, you know what I tell them? Those of you who have been around long enough, you know exactly what I tell them, what I say. <laughs> no, not at all. You see, we're not trained to do that, though, are we? What if our, our society has trained us to do what? Well, you're close. Um, we're trying to be nice about it. Peter just gets up and says, these people aren't drunk. What a ridiculous conclusion. It's 9 a.m. You think all these guys are drunk? In fact, you're drunk too because you're hearing it in your own language. He just blows their understanding, or their attempt to bring some uh, explanation to the event totally out of the water. It's 9 a.m. Do you really think we're all drunk here? Come on. And at some point, we need to confront people with the absurdity of their conclusions trying to understand your life in Christ. And you say, no, that's not it at all. 
My poor sundown Eastern, I think he picked up a little bit of that in our household because we're just like that in my house. If you're wrong, we'll all laugh at you and point and tell you you're wrong because it's funny. Um, you'll get over it. Um, but he did that down at Eastern and got <laughs> His friends were like, oh, can't believe you said that. These are his Christian friends. I can't believe you said that. Why? Because number one, don't offend anybody, right? Isn't that our society rule? Number one, don't offend anybody. No matter how offensive they are to our faith, no matter how offensive they are to our Savior, we are not supposed to offend them. And Peter right away wants to discount their explanation of what happens. And he says, listen, men, we're not drunk. You think we're drunk? You suppose we're drunk? It's only the third hour of the day. Come on, just turn your brains on, people. It's 9 a.m. All these guys are not drunk. Here's what's really going on. And I love this. The very next thing he does, once he dispels their wrong conclusions about what they've experienced, once he's just just blown it out of the water with a simple statement, it's 9 o'clock. Do you really think all of us are drunk? Including yourselves, really? How dumb is that? Think. And then the very next thing he does is say, let's pick up our Bibles. <laughs> Great. Reasoning was used by Peter to dispel their wrong conclusions. They come to this uh, explanation that these guys are all drunk. And he, he doesn't use the Bible to dispel them yet. To dispel their wrong conclusions, he uses pure reason. And by pure reason, I can, I can pretty much blast every philosophy of man out of the water. It's not hard to do. It really isn't. Including evolutionary, just, just the whole philosophy of evolution is absurd. It violates every rule of reason. And so Peter says, all right, let's just put our thinking caps on here a little bit. It's 9 a.m. Do you really think everyone here is drunk at 9 a.m.? That would mean that every one of them is an alcoholic, including the people listening, because they heard it in their own language. No. That's nonsense. But now, to explain it properly... We don't use reason. We use super reason. And super reason takes us right to the Bible. Because now we have God's explanation. And you're not going to reason anyone into your position as a Christian. I want you to understand that. You cannot uh, logically bring them to faith. It just doesn't work. You can logically destroy their wrong positions. That can and should be done to destroy error is not really hard because, guess what? It's error. Now, that doesn't mean you can make them see that error, but that you can confront that error logically and say, that doesn't even make sense. But once you start wanting to explain God's meaning, 
Now you need to get away from human intuition and get into divine revelation. Uh, It's okay to use human intuition to counter their position. But when you want to represent your position as a Christian, it is necessary you use divine revelation. Does that mean that our faith is irrational? No. Um, And you've heard me say this before lots of times. Our faith is not irrational, but it is super rational. It is on a level of reason that is beyond most men. Because most men are denying truth in their philosophizing over life. They're denying fundamental truths. And so we can't really speak to them because they deny fundamental truths in their reasoning. So the reasoning of God is up here. It is not the opposite of reason. We do not have an irrational faith. And that's why we as a church body can gather together, get God's word out and go, this makes absolute perfect. And we can go through God's word and we can be excited and thrilled and, and, and we can see it all fit together um, with, with wonderful harmony and, and, and be excited about it. And other people will say, you guys are out of your mind. No, we're out of, we're beyond our mind. We're not acting irrationally. We don't turn our brain, I don't turn my brains off when I start reading a book. You do when you start watching TV. Your brain gets very quiet. Your brain is more active, and you've heard me say this plenty of times, sleeping than it is watching TV. And so to help my brain, I fall asleep while watching TV so I can get going on. Reading activates your brain. You have to be cognitively engaged. You don't have to be with the TV, and that's what's so dangerous about it, is that you're you're giving the world a direct pipeline right to your subconscious because your brain itself is being disengaged so they can bypass your reason, your logic, and even your values and go right into your subconscious. So... We have a a super rational faith that's built upon engaging the mind and we find over and over again an expectation in God's word that we're going to sharpen our mind. And so Peter here has used just, just basic common sense to dispel their position, their misunderstanding of truth. Now he wants to communicate to them what really is happening And the first thing he does is say, let's pick up our Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. And that's what he does. And he quotes extensively from the book of Joel. Then he's going to quote extensively from from David's writing. And we're going to find him from from start to finish uh, explaining what's going on thoroughly using God's word. And this we must also do. The information they need is not a, ultimately, is not a rational presentation of Christ. Um, There is reason involved. I don't want you to say that we're irrational. But fundamentally, God's word is reason enough. 
And so here the prophet Joel comes out and he finds here in an ancient text, even to Peter, these words. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There it is. That's his text that he's going to be preaching from, that he uses a foundation. But fundamentally what he's saying is, what you just experienced, God talked about way back there. <laughs> God's ahead of the game by a few hundred years. And if you'd known your scriptures, which again, who's he talking to? Men of Judea and all you of Jerusalem. Men who claimed to know God's word and were following it. He quotes out of, to this group, God's word extensively. And what's the response? The response, uh, it, or I'm sorry, what's its purpose? Its purpose is to, first of all, say, this should be expected. It shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't perplex you because God said in the last days he was going to send this and it was going to happen. Are you surprised that what God said is going to happen happens? And by the way, that is a powerful use of prophecy still to this day. That I can go back to the Bible and I say, well, God said that there would be pictures talking and now there's pictures talking. God knew about it a few thousand years earlier than us. That one day pictures would talk. God said this was going to be like this. And here it is, just like that. And we can correlate those things and say, you know, you're dealing with God who is all-knowing. He said this would happen. It is not foolishness. God proclaimed this would be the evidence of the outpouring of his spirit on all flesh. And Peter hasn't really come to the grips with the fact of all, some of what he's saying Peter himself doesn't understand. Peter himself hasn't developed his theology and his practice to incorporate all of God's word yet. And that's a relief to me, by the way. Because there are some things that I get done preaching, I go home and I go, oh man, how am I going to live that? Because sometimes there's things that come out of my mouth that shock me in the middle of a sermon. Especially when I'm quoting scripture, I'm reading a passage, I'm using one part of it, but then another part of it jumps out at you and slaps you in the face while you're reading it for the other part. Peter hasn't figured out all flesh yet. He hasn't come to um, the point even of his own words later on when he's going to say both to you and your children um, and to those who are far off. Peter still doesn't know what that really means. He still doesn't grasp the fact that God, that salvation is going to be offered to the Gentiles as well. God's got to do some work in him in the next few months before that's going to happen. In years. It's going to be a long time before Peter really understands and fully accepts that. Even after God's trained him in that 
he still messes up on occasions. And remember, Paul says, you know, he had to confront Peter. Because Peter started acting like, like the Gentiles were second-rate Christians. And he had to rebuke him in front of everybody. Paul had to rebuke Peter. And so, Peter doesn't fully understand yet all that he is reading out of the book of Joel, but it's all truth, and Peter accepts it as that. But what he is drawing out from it uh, goes to the point of explaining what just happened. The outpouring of the Spirit, this sound you're hearing, these tongues that you see upon us, this uh, experience of hearing God's word in your own language, this was told ahead of time that it would happen. You should fully understand it because you claim to be people of God's word. And so here's what God's word says it would happen. Here's where it's actually happening. You should understand this as a demonstration that these are the last days. That something radical has happened here. That this is a great change. That it is now time for us to consider our ways more carefully. So the focus, of course, is on the outpouring of the Spirit here in Joel, but there is obviously much more that we could teach on. But for Peter, he wanted the outpouring of the Spirit to be talked about, but he also wanted the coming of the Lord. And he comes to what is here in verse 21 of chapter 2. Um, the information, here's what this is. This is the outpouring of the Spirit, just as God said. That's verses 17 through 20. We come to verse 21, and now heed my words. Here's the information. Now here's its purpose. And purpose is going to take on a powerful idea in Peter's sermon here. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the midst of all of this activity, um, of the outpouring of the Spirit and all this prophetic activity and, and it's all the, the, the sounds and the and the, you know, everyone there was prophets, both men and women. Uh, this was just a wonder. Uh, we also are just a, a little over a month and a half away. We're 50 days away from, from 53 days away from the crucifixion where everyone in Judea and Jerusalem, what did they see happen that day? Well, they saw the sun go away. Be covered, where it's total darkness. They couldn't see in front of their face. It was darker than night. And, and that comes over as Christ is hanging on the cross and dying. Uh, they have seen these things happen. This description in Joel of the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood for the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That the day of the Lord had been instigated, had been initiated by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And it's Jesus that he wants to introduce. And so we have an explanation of the experience followed immediately by an introduction of who is it that brings on the last days? It's the day of the Lord. And you have that experience of, of a month and a half ago, two months ago, that we just just have as well. And so we have all this combined in Joel. The conclusion of the matter is, you need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so out of this text, he's going to now 
build on not just the experience of the day, but of the experience of the last three and a half years. And again, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. I want to take you to Christ. And brethren, we have got to take people to Christ. We've got to have always in our thinking that there has to be an avenue in this conversation for me to lift up my voice in this relationship, to lift up my voice, communicate the necessary information, and within that necessary information, they must understand who Christ is. They must know Jesus. To trust in Him, to fully believe in Him, they must understand who He is. And what is it that we find out in verse 22? Jesus was a man. Born of Nazareth. We know where he comes from. His mom is still right here. In fact, she's one of the ones who is speaking in tongues there that day. So are his brothers. His family are there. Jesus of Nazareth. A man. (laughs) He was a real man. He was not just a, a image of God that walked on earth, kind of like a, a mirage. He was not nothing like that. He, he became fully man. And men must understand that Jesus was fully man. To be our Savior was is necessary to become fully man. Secondly, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. Attesting to what? That he is the Christ. The miracles, the signs, the wonders, that He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Deliverer. He is the one that you must trust in. He is the one. He is the Lord. God proved it to you by working through Him. But we haven't gotten to deity yet. We haven't gotten to deity yet. A lot of people think, well, the signs and wonders and everything were to prove his deity. Well, if that's true, then Peter is going to be more God than Jesus because Peter did more than Jesus did. And Jesus said he would. The miracle signs and wonders are there to attest to the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. And listen to his message. He's a prophet of God. And all the prophets um, perform signs and miracles uh, to communicate something to the people that, that God has sent me. He is a sent one of God. Uh, so hence, Messiah. The sent one. And Peter himself is going to be a messenger, a prophet, a, an apostle, a sent one. And the signs and wonders that are, that are accompanying him tell people, listen to his message. So why didn't you listen to Jesus when he was here for three years, when every time he had miracle and wonders and all these things, and yet you did not listen to him as a prophet of God, as the prophet of God? You didn't listen to him. So first, Jesus is the man. He is a prophet attested by God, but then... You crucified him, the end of verse 23. We're going to handle most of 23 next week um, and into some other passages, uh, including later on in, sermon, in Peter's sermon. Um, 
You crucified him. You put him to death. And then verse 24, God raised up, having to loose the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And now, by means of the power of the resurrection, Peter begins to develop the fact that this Jesus, a man, a great prophet, was also God. And now through the, through the prophet David, um, he's going to speak about the fact that this Jesus whom you crucified could not stay dead because he wasn't just man, he was God. And that's why he could not stay dead. He's the one David talked about, and, and, and Peter's got to remember back when Jesus spoke and challenged the Pharisees about, you know, David says, my Lord to my Lord. You know, if David calls his son Lord, then how's that work? So Jesus had already used some of these same texts, and Peter remembers it now. He's got the Spirit. He's going to use the exact same kind of idea. Listen, there is one greater than David who's the son of David. David calls him Lord, capital L. And since he's the son of David, he must be a man. Who's more than a man? And what's the evidence that Jesus was more than man was the resurrection. Not by the hand of a prophet, but by his own being. God raised him through no prophet. We have other men who have been raised from the dead. Lazarus particularly was just in a, again, two months ago, three months ago, something like that. Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? So we have men raised from the dead, but this one conquered death and has ascended. And he did it not by some, a great prophet raising him to life, but rather God raised him, a direct act, giving evidence once again that this man, who's a great prophet, the prophet of God, is also God himself. God incarnate. And so Peter uses these texts all to draw attention to Jesus. Sure, he explains what happened. Holy Spirit came down. That's what happened. God said it was going to happen. It shouldn't surprise you. In fact, you shouldn't even be perplexed. You should just pick up your Bible. It has the answers. But since you missed that, it must be obvious that you also missed this. Because you killed Jesus. It's obvious you missed this. That this Jesus, the one you killed a couple months ago, less than, God raised. And again, it would have been so easy to just shut Peter's mouth right then and there. Everyone knew where Jesus was buried, right? All the Romans knew where he was buried. They were guarding the place. All they had to do is produce the body, and Peter is done. That was the easiest time to produce the body was right then. They've had a couple of months. The rumors have been flying around. Produce the body, and it's over. Christianity's done. It never gets off the ground. This man you murdered, God raised up. And he is God. He is the Lord that David talked about. He is the one David trusted in, who was his own son. He's going to go on and describe that um, 
and we're going to talk a little bit more probably in two weeks about the development of the historical redemption of, of Israel in the messages, of the historical working of God in people's lives, going way back into, of course, Moses and, and for Stephen even farther back, and the, and the development of the fact that God is not uh, making this up as he goes along, but that he has a purpose and plan that he's developing. And Peter here is going to talk to that a little bit. But fundamentally, he keeps wanting to drive us back to Christ. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the Redeemer. He is the Messiah, the Deliverer. He is the one who has conquered sin and conquered death. And He is the one that you must call on His name to be saved. And this is where we must take people. Give them the information. Well, first live a life that is light and darkness that brings them to ask the question, what could this mean? Let the people around you see a difference and let them, oh, that they would say, what does it mean that you're like this? Why are you like that? And then dispel their wrong ideas. And go ahead and simply use good logic to do that. But, oh, pick up your Bibles. People need to hear the truth from God's Word. And when you do so, take them very quickly to Jesus. That is the information they need first and most. Along the way, do not be afraid to communicate to them their sin. As you make a path towards them understanding that God has a redemptive plan, not just for the history of man, but for each man. God has a redemptive plan for them. That they must heed this command. That they must respond to this call. That whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've got to get people to this point where you look them in the eye and say, you need to call on the name of Jesus to be saved or you will perish. Anything less is a disservice to the lost and it's cheating men of the gospel In our hearts and minds, we all already know it because that's how we came to Christ. If someone gave us what we needed to know and then said, what are you going to do about it? You need to trust in Jesus today. And since that's how we got there, guess what? That's how your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your classmates, that's how they're going to get there. Your enemies. That's how they're going to get there. Someone's going to have to tell them what they need to know and then communicate to them that they need, they must call upon the name of the Lord. And if they do so, they'll be saved. Saved from their sin. Saved from judgment. 
that the Spirit has already convicted them of. If they will recognize it. This is what it means to be witnesses. Live the life, sure, do it. Be light, be salt. You've got to do it. Get their attention. You want to bring people around you to ask the question, what does it mean? But once you've done that, your job isn't over. And don't bring them to me and say, can you tell them what it means? No, you need to be ready to lift up your voice, dispel their false ideas, and then take them to the Bible and introduce them to Jesus. Tell them they need to be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this introduction into a very powerful message. A message that power is developed by your Spirit and because of its dependence upon your Word, because it is backed by lives that were committed to you. And Lord, we pray that similarly, our witness might be built upon your word, might draw men and direct men to Jesus Christ, call upon them to action, and might be supported by the lives we live in front of them. Lord, where we have failed to do this in the past, forgive us. Give us a love for the lost around us that you died for that compels us to share Christ, to lift up our voices, to help them understand that which just perplexes them, really. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.